Hello and welcome to the Insights in Focus podcast. I'm Philippa Lamb. And for this episode, we're doing something different. For the first time, we have just one guest and his name may be very familiar to you. ICAW Chief Executive Michael Itzer. Michael has been in post for 18 years and at the end of March, he's moving on to fresh challenges. In that time, he's been busy steering the Institute through a prolonged financial crisis, navigating a pandemic and its highly complex aftermath and grappling with the early stages of a global tech revolution. Now, almost a quarter of the way into the 21st century and with tech and eco changes transforming the global economy, Michael is here to share his views on the future of the profession and to tell us what he's taking away from his time at ICAW. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Hi. You've been with ICAW, I think, since 2002, haven't you? And I think you took on the CEO role in 2006, just before the financial crisis. What did you think when you walked through the door? What did you think your priorities were going to be? Well, if we go back to 2002, my first day was not the day I expected. Because unbeknown to me, the previous month, the ICAW Council had not approved the budget. So I walked through the door, 3rd of January, first thing I had to do, no induction, you need to look at the budget, two weeks time, we've got an extraordinary council meeting to see what you think of the budget, focus. <laughs> Hit the ground running. Absolutely. And the 2006 timing, just, you know, just ahead of the financial crisis, that must have been a challenge. It was. When I took over, one of the things that sticks very much in my mind was that there was a, a, an accountancy journal at that time called uh, Accountancy Age. And they ran um, a front page with my picture on. I have to say it wasn't a particularly flattering picture. Okay. And it said, one man, 127,000 problems. And the article was expressing a view that the ICAW was actually a very difficult organisation to run because although it's a professional body for chartered accountants, we are a broad church. And they all want something very different. And actually trying to satisfy that wide range of stakeholders had proved very challenging to my predecessors. So that was the, that was the backdrop to me walking in. And then, as you say, the financial crisis hits. So you must have walked in with a raft of priorities in your mind. You knew what sort of shape the Institute was in. But then the financial crisis came. So did you have to park some of that and move into other areas that you hadn't expected to tackle quite so fast? Well, the first thing that was very much in my mind was we had to get some growth back into the Institute. Because although I've mentioned that 127,000 number, I mean, growth was very, very slow. And we needed to look at that. So that was clearly a priority. The other thing that was a priority was that in 2006, we had effectively rebranded the ICAW. And the ICAW changed from being the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales to being ICAW. And we went through a whole series of brand workshops with members and members were very protective of their institute. But what they said our biggest challenge was that the institute might well die through lack of interest. So we, we, had, to, we had to prove our relevance and, and a lot of that was focused on the brand. So notwithstanding the financial crisis, those were two of the things that I was really conscious of day one, growth and relevance. But presumably you're also thinking about role and purpose for the Institute. It wasn't just a branding exercise, was it? It was a, a reinvention to a degree? 
its absolutely uh, purpose because uh, when you're a professional body, one of the characteristics of a professional body is that you expect your members to act in the public interest and to put others before themselves. Now, that's something that uh, we all learn in our training but often forget with the passage of time. And if that was something that had slipped people's minds and they were more interested in what's in it for me, you have to remind them that the purpose of the ICAW is something that's really quite special. And that public interest, public benefit angle is, is something we should cherish. So we, we had to remind them of why we were important, why we were relevant, and why we are important across the whole economy, which sort of led us very nicely into the financial crisis. Well, yes, because you had the opportunity there, didn't you, to demonstrate exactly those things, because you personally, and obviously the Institute as a whole, were very close to those seismic events, the financial crisis and indeed the pandemic. So on the financial crisis, taking that one first, I mean, people listening to this podcast today who didn't experience it might not appreciate how difficult it was to see the queues of people down Moorgate trying to get their money out of Northern Rock. Yes. You know, that, that, was, that, was, that was really, really uh, a sight that would pull you up short. Yeah, something people didn't expect to see in this country. A run on a bank. Yeah. And in addition to that, our members were concerned about their financing. Was the financing going to be problematic? Uh, and of course, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Our members in practice, the auditors, were all concerned about their audit opinions. Could they actually give a going concern opinion on some of these banks when their counterparties might collapse overnight? And who knows what that would result in? So, I mean, these were really, really big issues. So without wanting to overplay the role of the ICAW in this, because, you know, this was being dealt with at a global level, we were certainly inputting into the regulatory structures, the government, the Bank of England, with our particular insights that hopefully helped us navigate through that crisis. And you worked closely with government at that time. Yeah, so so on the specifics, Northern Rock and Bradford and Bingley and the Dunfermline building societies all effectively collapsed. And one of the things that the government had to do was look at whether or not any compensation was going to be paid to uh, the shareholders. So they wanted to appoint an independent valuer who was going to look at this. And this is quite a contentious thing because the, the valuer was going to look at residual value should there be any distribution. So I chaired the panel that appointed the value for Northern Rock and then Bradford and Bingley and then Dunfermline Building Society. Now, chairing the panel you know, might seem like a relatively straightforward thing to do. But I seem to remember that for Northern Rock, we had 15... Uh, 15 parties tendering to be that value. And because it's government, you know, you have to be seen to be fair. I mean, it took a hell of a lot of time. While events were actually unfolding very rapidly. Uh, absolutely. And you knew that at the end of it, someone wasn't going to be happy. Yeah, absolutely. A difficult time. Yes. But we got through it. There's been so much change since then. I, I was thinking about it earlier. I'm wondering what the, what the biggest thing is in terms of fundamental change. And I'm wondering if it's the proliferation of data just the extraordinary quantity and breadth of data collection now. And 
the profession at the heart of it, collecting and attempting to use that data in a productive and constructive way rather than just collecting it for collecting its sake. Do you see that as a big challenge? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that as I uh, leave ICAW shortly can look back on is is effectively the first quarter of a century. Yes. And um, you know, the ICAW, which has been around since 1880 in its current incarnation, uh, can take a long-term view of, of these issues. So if you go back to the turn of the century, before I was at ICAW, I worked in a dot-com business. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of technology and how it was starting to change things. But what we were on the cusp of then was an explosion of data. And uh, if you are coming into the workplace today, it's very difficult to visualise how much of a change there's been since the turn of the century. I mean, there's been exponential growth. I mean, there's a, there's a phrase which uh, I like to use, but I can't claim to have uh, originated, is that we're drowning in data, but we're starving for insights. Yes. And, you know, this, this, is, this is such a big challenge. So chartered accountants are actually at the centre of this because ensuring that data integrity is there, that data can be used to make management useful information and then management and the boards can act on that data is, is actually a really big, uh, really big thing. And the growth of that continues today. I mean, we, we've seen data analytics come through, but today we are probably going to see a further shift with generative AI and how generative AI takes these datas, puts them into common data models and makes it more useful. And then I would, I would postulate that that's probably going to also move to one side when quantum computing comes in. But that's for another day. It's fundamentally changing the way accountants work and the work that they do. Do you think it will make work for the profession more interesting in the sense that some of the repetitive routine processing is, is just disappearing now. It's, it's, machines are doing this for us. Absolutely. If we have um, a vision for how we see chartered accountants operating within this data area, it's as custodians of data. You know, someone, someone has got to make sure that this data has integrity, is capable of being used, but the processing of it will be down to machines who can do it far better than we can. So we then have to evaluate that output, and that's where chartered accountants need to be. So when people say, are you bothered about the future of the profession? Well, obviously, you know, we can't, we can't rest on our laurels. But when we look at the jobs that are going to be replaced or changed, it's probably not going to be at the chartered accountancy level, not at the start anyway. It's going to be at those processing clerical jobs, which to some degree have already disappeared in many finance departments. That explosion of data has a darker side as well, doesn't it? it it's, it's leveraged the opportunity for bad actors. We've seen fraud rapidly rising. That's another one for accountants to deal with, isn't it? Front and centre right now. So fraud today is at um, epidemic proportions. We may not observe that in our day-to-day -day activities, but the ICAW, through its regulatory activities, works closely with government and uh, law enforcement. And we see some of the statistics as to how many frauds are being perpetrated. And as I say, it's, it's epidemic proportions. 
Yeah, we've covered it on the podcast more than once. The, the numbers are amazing. And you just know that for every every pot of gold that uh, is out there, someone is trying to work out how they can access it by nefarious means. So, you know, if we take the pandemic, for example, you know, the, the Chancellor, um, now, now the Prime Minister, wanted to do the right thing and wanted to support business. But I remember saying to my wife at the time, the, the, the morning of that announcement, I said, there'll be somebody now sitting down, working out how they can manipulate that to their benefit. And of course, we know there are billions of pounds that potentially are never going to be collected. And that brings us to a less tangible role for accountants. And that's about ethics, isn't it? Because we can have a regulatory framework around fraud, we can legislate. But the way in which accountants do business, the way in which they advise their clients, that's about ethics, isn't it? Underpinning it, everything we've talked about so far. Have you seen as much progress in that area as you would like? That's a really interesting question because we always talk uh, about ethics being at the heart of the accountancy profession. And, and let's hope that it is. And we all have it drummed into us through our training contracts. But plenty of other professions also claim to be ethical. And I think whether or not you are an ethical profession comes down to how you behave and how others perceive you to behave. And like other professions, we occasionally let the halo slip because none of us are perfect. And I think it behoves the ICAW to constantly remind its members about the importance of ethics and not to assume that you're an ethical person who never needs to reflect on a decision that they're making as to whether or not it might be ethical. And I've, I've seen some people who I would, on face value, think are very ethical people make mistakes that, with reflection, they should probably have understood that it didn't smell right and they shouldn't have done it. Good people can do bad things, can't they? And not always for bad reasons. Absolutely. I mean, as I actually leave ICAW, one of the things that I'm very pleased about is that we've been running a survey for eight years now with a research group called Edelman looking at trust because ethics and trust, I think, are two sides of the same coin. So this is trust in the profession. Trust in the profession. And in 2023, chartered accountants were the most trusted professionals in the UK, with the exception of doctors and nurses, which over an eight-year period, we'd moved up, 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 up. And I think that's a, a great place for me to leave it to my successor, because, you know, we, we'd worked hard on this. Now, it can all go backwards very quickly. But, you know, that's, that's how we're perceived today by business. Yes, as you say, but there's always more work to be done, isn't there? It's this idea of embedding ethics in everything organisations doing, rather than it being a course you go on, a conversation you have at an away day. That idea of embedding it in the culture, it's hard to do, isn't it? Easy to talk about. Of course it is. And we talk about ethics as well being a golden thread. So one of the things that we have wanted to do over the last 20 years is make sure that we embed it so we're, we've been quite resistant historically to doing things like ethics qualifications and, and, and things of that nature because you know, it should be all pervasive. It shouldn't be something that you do and then put it down and then move on to something else. It's actually part of everything 
people in business do. Am I right in thinking it's now become a mandatory part of CPD? Yeah, so that's that's with effect from November 2023. So we are requiring all of our members to work through an ethics module. It's not particularly time-consuming, but uh, can I just say, uh, if anyone's listening to this and is in two minds as to whether they should do it now or put it off until near the deadline, I found it really useful. And many people I know who are very experienced business people have confirmed that view. So you might well learn something. Yeah, because in business, I mean, accountants can often be the person around the executive or the, or the board table questioning whether actions are right or appropriate. That can be a tough one. It can be a very lonely and challenging position. Have you, have you found yourself in that position? Yes, I have. And as we know, many chartered accountants train in practice and then move out into industry. I mean, it's a well-trodden path and it has been a path that's existed for decades now. But when you actually make that move from a professional firm, and many people in that firm may be pretty smart people, probably from a graduate background, professionally qualified, you go into a business environment where you might be the only professional. And that makes it a lonely place. It's even lonelier if the firm is one where you have to effectively provide the guide rails within which they can operate, and they're always trying to test those. So, um, yeah, I I have been in that position, and I know it's not easy, but um, lots of things in life aren't easy. And it's the job, isn't it? It's part of the job. It is, and and the the job isn't just to say no. The job is to say, well, that's how you could do it, but if you do it that way, I want no part of it. Shall we talk about sustainability? We talked about tech, but I know sustainability is very close to your heart. Uh, you, you touched on it a bit, but how transformative do you think this whole movement is going to be, is being for the profession? Well, let's talk about purpose. When we think about a profession and we think about why people want to be part of a profession, they generally you know, want a, want a career that's going to provide them with a good income, but many people also want to make a difference. And my view is that the single most important priority facing the planet today is how are we going to transition to a world of zero carbon or low carbon in which we can reverse some of the damage that's been done during the Anthropocene. And chartered accountants have got a really important role to play. Now, it wasn't me that said that. Uh, there's a there's a quote that's often attributed to the then Prince of Wales, now the King, which is, chartered accountants are going to save the world. <laughs> it, I don't think I've heard that. It, it, it wasn't actually the Prince of Wales who said it. It was said by uh, a chap called Peter Backer from the World Business Sustainability Council. But I was very happy for the Prince of Wales to repeat it. And what he what he was saying was that actually the thing that's going to cause people to look at the issue and deal with it is measurement, reporting and assurance. And those are things that are at the heart of what chartered accountants do. And he envisaged that uh, initially through perhaps the business sector, but it's got to be a whole economy approach and it's got to be a global approach. So... One of the things I think the ICAW can be very proud of, and this isn't down to me, 
because you know, nothing nothing is done by one person alone. There was a real collective effort on this. We have raised the consciousness of sustainability within the accountancy profession to a level whereby people now talk about it as being core and it's going to be as important as tax, audit, corporate reporting, corporate finance. I mean, that that's how people see it today. Now, we are still in the process of finalising what some of the reporting standards would be. But, I mean, I was very, I was very pleased that I was on the Treasury's high-level steering group that uh, was formed after COP26 that reported last year with a new sector-neutral framework for net-zero transitions. This, this is going to become the gold standard that businesses are going to have to think through and adopt. And where does this planning tool sit? The finance department. Who should be leading it? The CEO and the CFO. Yeah, because I mean, chartered accountants, prominent on boards, there's a role not just a process role in terms of actually as a planning exercise, but actually hearts and minds, interrogating existing strategies, all those influencing conversations. That's for accountants too. Absolutely. And, and if you are listening to this and thinking, I don't do that in my organisation, can I encourage you to look at the ICAW Sustainability Hub? Some fantastic resources there but it also shows what your peers have been doing because for 15 years now, we've seen finance departments leading this within companies. So don't wait to be asked, take the initiative. Because as you say, awareness is high, but this is still very much a developing area, isn't it? That I think it's fair to say there's still a lot of confusion about what sustainable practices should actually look like, you know, what will genuinely make a difference rather than perhaps, you know, creating the right impression or short-term wins. This this turf is not set in stone yet, is it, to mix my metaphors. It's There's a lot of work to be done on, on collaborative joint understanding of what needs to be done and how it should be done. I'm on record for the conversations I've had with government and regulators about them being flexible as businesses and professionals start to work in this area because... Some of the things that are being done today in three years' time will be shown to be actually to be suboptimal and perhaps uh, people shouldn't do that. And, and any, any type of planning which looks into the future has inherent risk. So I've been, uh, I've been particularly keen that regulators, uh, when they um, look at the work that's been done in this area, whether by listed companies, whether it's by auditors or assurance providers, just sort of remember that uh, it doesn't have the it doesn't have the integrity that corporate reporting has today. And it will be some time before it gets there, because in some cases, we're still working out how to do it. But what we can't do is wait 10 years until we've figured out how to do it perfectly, because another 10 years will have elapsed. You know, we, we need to start making the transition now. And we should have started 10 years ago. It's tricky, that, because it has to happen now, no question about that. But those possibly suboptimal solutions that people are perhaps putting in place now run the risk, don't they, of undermining the message, undermining the endeavour when they're shown to be suboptimal in two, three, five years' time. So there's a lot to be done in terms of messaging, isn't there, from the accountancy profession? So if you come back to the role of the ICAW and what we can do is that no one should be doing this alone. 
we should be comparing our collective notes. And th there are some organisations who've been trailblazers in this area for a decade, uh, a decade or more. We should, we should learn from their experience. And um, this should not be proprietorial. This is too important for it to be proprietorial. There needs to be a collaborative approach, a sharing approach, and I include that not just within the UK, but internationally as well. We in the UK have been at the vanguard of this, and uh, we, can, we can help others get up that learning curve much more quickly than we've been able to. Discussions like this, they always touch on legacy, don't they? <laughs> now, I know legacy, some people are more preoccupied with it than others, but... I mean, you must have thought about it. Yes, but legacy seems like the sort of phrase that people use when they're sort of uh, shuffling off their mortal coil. Hopefully, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go on to the next phase of my career. But when you've got an organisation that's been around since 1880 and is going to continue, hopefully, long after I am the chief executive, all, all you can really do is look at the shape it's in today versus the shape it was in when you took it over. And if we look at the ICAW today, it's got 170,000 members. It's got 38,000 students. That's the future. That's the pipeline. It's well-resourced. It's well-respected. We are a confidant of government and governments. We talk to the NGOs. We, we straddle the whole of society. The ICAW is in a great place today, and, and my success has got an excellent platform from which to do something really interesting with. My legacy is that. Yeah, it sounds like you're reasonably satisfied with what you've managed to get done. I, I completely understand there will always be things that I suspect you have a list in your head of things that you would like to have done that haven't happened. But generally, pleased with the way it's gone. I did my best. No one can say more than that. Are you able to tell us what you're going to move on to or are you going to take some time and think about what seems most interesting to you? I need some time off to recharge the batteries, and w without wanting to sound, uh, without wanting to sound uh, in any way like I'm uh, not up for a challenge, the period since the pandemic has been pretty hard, and I think when I talk to my peers, and this isn't in just professional bodies, this is in CEO roles more broadly, they found the pandemic challenging and the aftermath challenging, and. I need to recharge my batteries before I decide what to do next. It won't surprise you to hear that the things I'm gravitating towards are sustainability and the net zero transition and what I can do to help with that, but also technology. I said that um, I used to work in a dot-com business. Yes. I'm really interested in where technology is going to take the profession and indeed society going forward. So those are two things that, that interest me. I'm also very interested in public service. So actually giving something back, either through the government or charities, uh, also appeals to me very strongly. And will you feel able to completely leave ICAW behind, do you think? Well, as a member, I shan't be leaving ICAW behind. So just to, uh, just to confirm, I shall be retaining my membership. I, I think it's important that uh, the Institute knows I'm here if they ever need me to do anything, but, but I'm not going to be... Uh, sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. I've got other things I want to do. Yeah, it sounds like it. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Philippa. If this episode has left you hungry for more podcasts, ICAW has in fact just launched a new one for everyone working in the tax sector with specialist analysis from the ICAW's own tax faculty, 
subscribe to the tax track on any podcast app or indeed icaw.com forward slash podcasts. For daily, weekly or monthly newsletters with the latest news from accountancy and audit delivered straight to your inbox, sign up at icaw.com and you can choose your preferred frequency. Thanks for being with us today. And if you haven't already subscribed to this series, why not click and subscribe right now? Thank you. Thank you.